maybe it's just the underground is one permutation of what the church could look like if it was free from the shackles of you know convention or um, expectation and there was a bias towards mission so this is why we're friends this is why maybe it's useful to the conversation it's not like we think the underground's approach is the best or better or anything like that but it's it is strictly speaking completely biased towards mission so like what if you were to reorient all the systems, uh, resources, the leadership, um, you know, intention, all towards mission, somehow catalyzing, empowering, supporting people who were already going to be doing mission. Welcome to another uh, episode of the Forge America Missional Podcast. We are on episode three. We have on the line with us, as usual so far, from the not-as-great state of Tennessee after the Super Bowl playoffs, Alan Bradford. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, this is getting a little personal all of a sudden. Well, <laughs> I'm just calling you out a little bit. Um, the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, how about from the great state of Texas, Mr. Terry Ishii? Hey, what's up? How you doing, man? And uh, we are glad to be with you again. Today we've got um, a great interview, one I was really excited about, with uh, Brian Sanders, who is one of the founders for Underground Network, or Tampa Underground, as a lot of people say. And uh, this guy is just, anytime I get to talk to him, um, it's really cool. So we got to uh, join up over the Atlantic via zoom and have a discussion about church and um, how to be innovative in launching movements um, of the church and ecclesiology. So we'll get to that in a minute. A uh, little update. Uh, wanted to find out um, where you guys were on Messiah. Um, I kind of put a, I threw it out as a uh, challenge to watch this Netflix mini series and just wanted to find out like what your, what your take is on it. Yeah. So I finished it. So uh, <laughs> Alan says I watch too much TV, which is probably, yeah. But, yeah, so I you finished the whole all 10 episodes, all 10 episodes. So, so I'm intrigued because we learned last episode that you keep a diary of movies and shows yeah. and things like that. And so you're, you're like this connoisseur of film and culture. Yeah. I, so I did you finish it, for, it because you just saw yeah. it as a homework assignment or you finished it because, Oh, this is really good. It's, it's funny you say that. Um, so first of all, I, I don't do, uh, I don't track TV, so I don't mm. like keep a, a rolling log of what TV I watch only movies. Um, and then I will like, you know, rate it on Netflix or whatever. Um, right. I'll go and do that. I don't do that for IMDb just because it muddies up the water when I do my reports at the end of the year. Um, but it's funny that shift, you say, You don't want to shift all of uh, no, TV, you know, no. ratings by, by putting yeah, it that out there. Yeah. Too much. That, yeah. that, that would be too much. But, uh, but it's funny that you say, see it like homework because there are times where, like, I'm a loyalist on the Enneagram. So I just, I, I feel like, Sometimes I just have to like finish things, uh, even though like I'm sitting there, I was like, this is horrible. Why am I watching this? But I only got three more episodes, so I'll just power through. And, uh, yeah. but the Messiah was nothing like that. The Messiah was, 
it was it was compelling. Um, I, I watched a couple episodes that you're kind of hey throw this out there, go check it out. I was hooked. I was just hooked. And so yeah, um, yeah any any kind of time I had around the house, uh, Bethany had to write some essays for high school, getting into the high school. So I had a lot of time just kind of on my own. So I was able to power through it. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't able to finish it, man. Uh, you guys have way much more time to watch TV. I ended up taking a uh, two and a half day retreat with our staff, with the church that I'm a part of here. Um, so obviously there was no TV watching then. Uh, but I will say this. So it's interesting that, uh, Terry, you as a six on the Enneagram, uh, you keep track of your movie watching and all that stuff. Uh, one of the guys we bring in every year uh, to do the staff retreat with us is a guy by the name of Jim Schmotzer. He's from Bellingham, Washington. He's kind of like our staff Obi-Wan Kenobi. So he spends some time with us. He's a six on the Enneagram. He's the only other person I know that tracks what he watches and has like a little diary and kind of yeah, ranks nice. it. I'm like, oh, is this some That's sort cool. of like... That should be an Enneagram question, like yeah, in like all a, the things, you know, like, do you track all the movies that you watch? Yeah. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if this is like a feature of the six or some sort of character flaw. I don't know. I'll yeah. let you decide, but yeah. Well, yeah. So the only other person I know that does this is a three and six uh, has moved to three in stress. So maybe oh, there you go. out sixes and threes do this. So. Yeah. <laughs> but in how that works, like threes move to six too, right? Yes. And so it could be, it could be when they get stressed, they got to, they have to watch movies when you're not stressed. That's what you do. You know? So. All right. So I want, I want you guys to ruin this for me. Uh, so the Messiah, I'm seven episodes in. And so, so it's, is it going to like shock me where it goes towards the end here? I don't know. They're, they totally set it up for, for season two. It's totally set up for season two. <laughs> is it season two, the resurrection? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But here's the deal, Terry. I want you to just, just with season one. Yeah. Now that you've watched the whole thing. Yeah. I need the, I need the Terry scale, even though you don't rate. Yeah, no. But rate it like a movie, you know? Yeah. So, um, so, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll use the, a, a simple Netflix scale. Um, you know, one stars is I hate it. Two stars. I didn't like it. Three stars. I liked it. Four stars. I really liked it. Five stars. I loved it. Uh, for Ma Messiah, I would give it a, a solid four stars. I really liked it. I didn't okay. love it. There were some things that were here and there. Um, yeah. but I really, really liked it. It was, it was, it was super compelling and just the sub, the subject matter, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated with this, and then and then like old school Baptist theology in the back of my head. I'm trying to like, oh, don't don't become a heretic. You be careful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> because they ask him, "Are you Jesus?" And you know, know. you have to watch it to see his response. But I'm just like, all right, I'm treading on, you know, treading lightly here. But well, at least he didn't look like a, you know a white Western guy with long, long hair, right? Yeah. It wasn't Jim <laughs> with like shredded abs. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, cool. Yeah. So if you're, if you're listening, uh, we, we encourage you to jump on Messiah. I think it'll kind of make you think a little bit. Um, and then Terry, you threw out a text just out of nowhere is like, Hey, you need to watch episode two of this, of unbelievable on Netflix, which is a, a short series yeah. as well. And so last night I watched episode one and episode two. 
and you, boy, you have to like make yourself sit through the first part of episode one. It's brutal. It's kind of brutal there. So it's a little bit dark, but man, there was a moment at episode two. I was like, Oh, that's what Terry is talking about. And it's, I was fascinated um, by this police officer, a detective who is sitting in the car with a girl who is, has allegedly been uh, raped and she has a little sticky note on her, um, on her dashboard that says, um, here am I, send me. And the girl asks, what does that mean? You know? And so she starts sharing a little bit of her faith. And so you start seeing that this cop actually, I mean, it's what we talk about here at Forge. She sees herself as a sent person uh, to kind of display the kingdom, bring shalom and peace, really in a, some brutal situations, right? Where cop, cops walk. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was super refreshing. And, uh, you know, I get excited anytime I see mission in, in pop culture like that, especially when it's not like a heavy handed Christian production, you know, it's like you, right. you kind of expect it when you watch Courage, right? We're, we're cops who love Jesus and parenting and fathers and, and that's not a slam at Courage. It is what it is. But uh, this is, this was great. You know, this is a Merritt Weaver who's, you know, Emmy nominated, phenomenal, amazing actress. Tony Collette, who's one of my favorites, is kind of her partner in this investigation. And just, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, maybe I'll go check it. Just a, a severe trigger warning for sexual assault. It yeah, is, it is yeah. not for, it's TVMA for a reason. Um, but it's just, it's beautiful to see this, this police officer, like, living out what mission is and then for her to be able to give words to it and for her to talk about her faith and how her faith, you know, she sees the role of faith is kind of a guiding, a guidance on making the world a better place. You know, she sees her purpose in that. And so, uh, yeah, seeing mission in the wild is, is amazing. I love it. It gets me excited all the time. Yeah. And you, and you rarely see it. You rarely see scenes like that in popular TV culture. I mean, and I have no idea if like the director or writer's a believer or not or whatever, but yeah, um, but it's yeah. but it's it's put out there in a really really uh, it's well done. You yeah, know? one of the things that Frosty uh, Michael Frost says quite a bit is um, you 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 can see the innate nature of mission, that desire, that purpose. I mean, we're all mm-hmm. we're all born with that purpose to be sent ones. Um, we don't know it, we don't see it, we don't have language for it. But you often can see that in pop culture where you see like the underlying, like, okay, why are you doing what you're doing there? Right. That, that is a kingdom thing. You don't see it. You may not have language for it. You may not even be aware of it. Um, um, so it's there, but to see someone, you know, I mean, quoting Isaiah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. sin, right? That, that, yeah. that was just so blatant. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's fantastic. It makes me think a little bit about the interview we're going to share uh, today also um, because Brian Sanders um, has been someone that um, I guess 12 years ago started to realize that they really needed to innovate and shift it, shift the way that they did church um, down in Tampa. 
um, as some students, intervarsity students, and really set off on a huge experiment that has been um, has been really really successful. Um, and it, it part of our conversation with Brian got uh, triggered from the Pew Research Study. I don't know if if you guys kind of digested any of that. And they've put out studies, you know, every few months and people debate them and argue them. Uh, but then they launched, uh, they launched a new study that, that came out in October, kind of mid late October this last year. And I've kind of read it over and over again. And some of the statements um, of their findings in this study are different than the studies before. Um, they're more, um, they're more real and blatant uh, uh, signs of declines or challenges in Christianity. Um, like they say, currently 43% of us adults identify with Protestantism, which is down from 51% in 2009. So when you think about like a 10 year span of time and it Protestants were the majority in 2009 and now 43% of us adults identify that way. Um, it's pretty, pretty telling, you know, and, um, I think, you know, those are the kind of statistics to, uh, for the church to pay attention to. It's like, you know, what, what's not working in our missional presentation of the gospel. Well, I, I'd be interested to say, cause you can look at research like that. And this is, this is just in America, right? The, right. the research is right. Just right. here in the United States. How does that line up with your guys' experience in the cities that you're in? Obviously Roland, you're in Forge or you're in Colorado Springs, Terry, you're in Austin. Uh, I'm in uh, to Knoxville, Tennessee here. So it's different parts of the country. How does this research line up with your kind of experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that often gets mischaracterized is, is the Christian culture of Colorado Springs. Um, I even thought that um, in moving. The focus on the family boulevard isn't. I, well, no. Well, there's not a focus on the family boulevard anymore. And interestingly enough, and I have friends that work at focus on the family, but focus is a really good um, test tube of what's going on. I think because they have this beautiful uh, campus. Um, I mean, they really are great, you know, beautiful buildings. I've led worship for their chapel and that kind of stuff. They, all of their staff now have moved from the buildings on the outlying areas to the center building. And those outlier buildings are now being rented to Subway and, you know, restaurants and other things. And so you're seeing, you're seeing this kind of play out, right? This, this kind of um, Mecca Christian kingdom thing is shrinking and culture is, is, the thing that's coming in on it. Right. I mean, it's like a, it's really, it's a really weird metaphor, but Colorado Springs people think, Oh yeah, that's like, you know, Christian Mecca. And, um, our experience, um, living here now about eight years is very different. I mean, absolutely. There are several churches. Um, there are, there's absolutely a group of people 
that work for mission agencies and are here because they are directly tied to kind of a more professional Christian uh, culture. Um, but the, there are more people that I know that are actually uncomfortable with church attendance or Christianity as a whole, or they outright don't believe, you know, they're, they're atheist or um, whatever. So we, we have experienced that there's like these two polar opposites that exist in Colorado Springs. And I actually think that the, um, I'm actually seeing this play out in Colorado Springs. I think fewer and fewer people are finding uh, their, the resolve of their faith in church attendance. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus. It's not that they're not spiritual. It's not that they don't believe in God or higher power. Um, it's that the church building is becoming less and less of a place where they find that. What about you, Terry? Yeah, I, I would say, Austin, you know, I think the, the report is, is pretty on point. Um, you know, looking, looking at the, the, the thing that stuck out in the report to me was just the, the generational differences and how uh, millennials are now, you know, the categories in those 1981 to 1996. Um, they're really the, the first generation. Um, 49%. So it's a, it's a minority, <clears throat> excuse me. And so uh, I think that that feels right for Austin. Uh, but even looking at some of the older demographic studies, um, you know, baby, baby boomers, um, it's 76% uh, kind of across the board. Uh, that seems high for Austin. Um, I, I know, I think maybe Austin's just an old hippie, you know, old hippie town at heart. Um, you know, that we, that's been Austin's identity for years. Um, you know, keeping Austin weird and, you know, Willie Nelson and just his influence <laughs> and Armadillo world headquarters and all of those kinds of things um, is, is I think we have maybe cooler baby boomers that are more, <laughs> a little more alternative, a little more, you know, too cool for school kind of thing. And so uh, I think we probably have that, but Gen X and millennials, it feels right. Um, yeah. So I think we're pretty on point. Yeah, I would say even here in Knoxville, uh, that statistic proves through. Uh, we actually had a, a really large church here in the uh, county do a study. They brought some organization in. This was back in 2016. So this is, this is four or five years old. And they did a study, and they basically said across the board here in Knox County, so Knoxville, Tennessee, East Tennessee, you know, a lot of churches here. Um, they said, if you look at what's called what they declared active Christian. So people that actually went to church, um, and I think it was like two times a month or, you know, it could be as little as one time a month. It was less than 20%, less than 20% of our County actually goes. Wow. And then you had 40%, a little over 40% were the, the duns, like, like they're just the, the, the Christians who are done with church, like any sort of organized, like they may not be done with Jesus, right. but they're like, as far as organized institutional Christianity goes, they've walked away and said, we really have nothing to do with that. And then there's about 40% of our County that are just no, no real affiliation with any sort of religion or spiritual or, or at least Christian religion. I'm sorry. There may be a fit affiliation to a, a religion, but not nothing to do with, um, with Jesus. Um, and I would say that 
that this stat is only the the duns are definitely increasing and i think the what they called active christians are only decreasing um, and i think it's across the board i think you can play out the generational things uh, obviously the older ones uh, more used to the obligation of attending a gathering right and so that's right. just something you do it's ingrained in you whereas there's a much more freedom uh in younger generations it's not something i have to do um so i'm not going to feel like i have to do it and so it definitely plays out here well i mean my you know my daughter is um pretty passionate christ follower and she is part of our church here she gets sometimes she'll go to services somewhere else. She's uh, meeting with a female pastor in town that's part of another church. Um, and so, I, you know, I think millennials or my, my experience having teenagers and, and baristas at our coffee shop and stuff um, is that they are, they're very interested in faith and spiritual things. It's just not, it's just that the, the church campus doesn't define that anymore. I mean, yeah. they're, they're willing to journey and kind of seek and read and talk to people. And for me, it's a healthier um, journey of faith. Yeah. And actually what the study would say, the one he did here, they would say that most of the people who are done with Christianity, they're done for mostly sociological reasons and not so much theological reasons. Hmm. And so their conclusion is fresh expressions of community and alternative ways of telling the gospel to those who have already heard it are, are needed. Just like, yeah, duh, right. welcome to the conversation. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's the right. whole, that's right. the whole conversation we're in, which is what we're doing uh, is not what's going to get us into the future. What we've done in the past, not necessarily you got to honor mm. it. It's done amazing stuff, but it's not what's going to take us into the future. Yeah. And un unfortunately some church communities are going to not realize that as, uh, as a reality today until they start feeling the pressures of um, what I would call, you know, just poor church metrics, which are giving and attendance and things like that. Th those are the things that will put the pressure on figuring out something new, right? And um, obviously in Forge, we're not, we're not against uh, traditional ecclesiology. In fact, we're, we're very, very for Jesus's church in any way contextually that it's carrying out mission. Um, I mean, we even do partnerships, right, with, with churches that want to shift to more of a missional presence in their community. Um, and actually take them through that. And you two guys are, are actually the ones that kind of, kind of help spearhead that and forge. Can you talk about like what you're seeing there? Like what kind of churches are wanting to partner and um, what they're doing? Yeah. A lot of the, the churches that I'm working with are um, there is a way it is a wide variety of churches and uh, wide variety in demographic. Um, and I'm working with some churches that are, deep suburban slash almost nearly rural. Um, I'm working with some city churches, uh, large city churches, and then small city churches. And um, it, so this is, this is, this is being touched everywhere. You know, one of the, the, the reports and one of the, the studies in the report um, talked about how uh, all of the country is in decline. It's, it's, you know, we typically think, Oh, it's, it's gotta be like, the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest, or maybe the you know, California right. or, but it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, we're, it's 12% down in the South. The Midwest is down in double digits. Um, and so 
it, it's it's everywhere. So everybody's feeling it. Um, and the churches that 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 I've had the privilege of working with, um, they are leaders who are seeing this. They're feeling it, but they're like leaning into it. And and, yeah. and that's the thing that I see that that just surprises me is how there are so many people that hear these things, see these things, and I know they feel it. They right. feel it every Sunday morning, but they ignore it. They're, they're, they're not willing to lean into the conversation. They're not willing to lean in to see what is going wrong, um, but simply just kind of, you know, hey, let's keep the status quo. Maybe we can improve it. Maybe we can do a little bit better. Or maybe if we, you know, it reminds me of, you know, my kid where, you know, she's like, dad, if, if you got me an iPhone, man, you know, this phone that I have does everything I need. But if I had an iPhone, then everything, <laughs> yeah. would, everything yeah. would be okay. Everything would work. Everything would fall into place. And sure. it's the iPhone's not going to do anything for you, sweetie. But, and, but that's the mentality that I see a lot of pastors who aren't willing to have these conversations. But short term, the iPhone will, will fix oh, a lot of things. Exciting. Right. <laughs> and so that's like, you know, so that's like the, the, new greatest worship leader or whatever, you know, so like you get something, someone on staff or you're able to invest some money on, in something or uh, you, you know, you think, Oh, building a new building and with more seats that somehow that's going to be, and you may get a bump out of that. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you may get growth out of that. You may actually pull Christians from another church, you know, which isn't a good thing. Um, and so you think you're doing things that are right. Um, but what we fail to see is, is the kingdom expanding yeah. into people that, that don't know God, you know, that don't have a relationship with Christ. And um, so often I, I see several pastors and they're usually in ch these churches that are um, like, you know, hundred to 500 people and they're just struggling to put a roof on the building to get enough people in there to, you know, pay for, part-time staff or whatever. And they really want to lean into this missional conversation because theologically you can't argue with it, but uh, ecclesiologically they've learned something different. And yeah. so it's hard. It's really, really hard to make that shift sometimes. And I would even throw out a word of warning <clears throat> because I've seen, you know, and I'm sure all of us can relate to this and, and we've seen it done, but I I've seen, the missional conversation be boxed as an iPhone where it's oh, like, yeah. Oh, just do the yeah. missional thing. It's here's a new program. Here's program. some new yeah. practices, yeah. you know, here's a new coding for what we're trying to do. Um, and then it just doesn't work because they haven't right. done any of the hard work of shifting culture of what could the church even sustain these kinds of practices. If you were to try to start a discipleship movement, you know, in the church, um, and do these things. And, and yeah, we, you know, it's, it's easy to look at it and say, man, these are fantastic ideas. This is, this is Jesus incarnated. Yeah. Sure. Let's go do that. And then they get frustrated when it doesn't work because they're simply looking at it and, and, and engaging it from a standpoint, this is just another program. It's just right. another feature. Right. And we know it doesn't work if you, if you don't do the hard work of doing the culture, doing the DNA, doing that hard work. And that's what I love about what Brian and the underground has done is they have really, really taken the time, you know, his story of taking a team to the Philippines, that's all DNA culture creation. And yeah. it's beautiful. It really it, is. It's like they rejected the premise at the start. 
Yeah. Which was church has to look like X, you know? Right. And so, um, and it, and you know, my understanding just from knowing some team members and being down there and seeing it and, and Forge being kind of a cousin, um, you know, distant cousin of underground in some ways is that, you know, it's really, really hard ministry. I mean, it's difficult at times and um, it's not easy on all the staff and what they're doing. But I mean, it's kind of like, what would you rather be worrying about? You know, would you rather be worrying about giving an attendance or would you be worry about rather worry about like how, how in the world do we launch these apostolic people out into mission, you know, into the city. And so I'd, I'd rather be doing that hard work than, you know, worrying about uh, paint on the walls or, you know, light bulbs burned out on the stage or that kind of stuff. So that's good. Yeah. That's maybe it's a good transition. Uh, let's just jump into uh, this interview with Brian, Brian. Um, and I, we talk about it a little bit, but he moved from Tampa to Dublin, Ireland, where he lives now. And uh, I, saw, <laughs> I know I, I saw a post of his uh, this last week where he was boarding his 51st flight in 12 months. Gosh. Think about that. So, I, I mean, he shared with me that, you know, they're trying to do some transitional stuff in leadership so that he doesn't have to, direct Tampa as much. And I really think he wants to really fire something up over in Ireland, uh, which is cool. But yeah, right now he's like, man, his airline miles probably look great. You know, <laughs> so you should hit him up. I'm going to hit him up for a vacation or something. So anyway, let's jump into this interview um, and we'll join Brian Sanders from Dublin, Ireland. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. And it's my pleasure to have uh, Brian Sanders with us um, through the graces of technology. I'm in Colorado and he is in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, we're going to have uh, a great conversation around uh, missional practice and ecclesiology and some, uh, some cool things. So thanks for joining us, Brian. Glad to be here, man. Good to have you. Um, this is a way of introduction for people that don't know who you are. Um, Brian's the, most people know him as the founder and executive director of the underground network in Tampa, uh, or a lot of us just say the Tampa underground. Um, he's an author. He's had, I don't know, like four titles before 2015. And then a couple of books have hit fairly recently, um, that caused some waves in a good way. Uh, the Underground Church in 2018, and then in September of 2019, you released uh, Micro Churches, a smaller way, which I found to be a fascinating read. And I want to, I want to get to that in a minute and kind of talk about that that book and why you wrote it and some of the thoughts behind it. Maybe to kick us off, can you? Um, Give us, give us like a little bit of a pitch for someone that doesn't know um, the past few years of your journey, uh, what, what the underground is, um, and then maybe include in that your move to Ireland really quickly if you can, because mm -hmm. I find it fascinating, um, that move that you made. Yeah, thanks, man. I, you know, it is hard to, to sum up or describe the underground in a short period of time, but 
um, maybe it's just the underground is one permutation of what the church could look like if it was free from the shackles of, you know, convention or um, expectation. And there was a bias towards mission. So this is why we're friends. This is why maybe it's useful to the conversation. It's not like we think the underground's approach is the best or better or anything like that, but it's, it is strictly speaking, completely biased towards mission. So like, what if you were to reorient all the systems, uh, resources, the leadership, um, you know, intention all towards mission, somehow catalyzing, empowering, supporting people who were already going to be doing mission. So, you know, I, I think, fundamental to that technology then is this idea of the micro church, like the small, the, the church that can be done by, by the people, you know, not by experts, um, whatever that means <laughs> in relation to the church anyway. But um, so in that sense, then the underground is also just, it's a network of micro churches. You know, it's, it's a network of small autonomous churches led by, you know, everyday people. Well, every kind of people, right? Um, yeah, and and I got the I got the pleasure of coming down and doing a uh, kind of a deep dive for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and saw um, you guys like took over a old Dillard's. Uh, is it was it a that's Dillard's? where we are now? An old Dillard's department there. store, like the whole <laughs> thing. That the edges of it kind of still look like Dillard's, but it's like turned into this co-working. Uh, office dream space, you know, with all these people kind of uh, supporting people on mission all around the city. Right. And I just, I found that just an incredible, um, it was an uplifting experience for me. Well, that's good to hear, man. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the built environment is just one system, right? It's just one aspect, like how we build buildings reflects, well, it reflects our ecclesiology it reflects our intention, like what it is we're trying to do. So I think that is one of the, maybe the more concrete, uh, you know, existential uh, impact of the underground is you can actually see how we use something like space and our theology of the built environment. You know, about 90% of our square footage is reservable, for example. So it really feels in that way more like a, you know, a student union at a university or something where it belongs to the students and they can reserve rooms and so forth. So, uh, so you've got maybe whatever we have now, 40,000 square feet and 90% of that, any microchurch could, could use, you know, could reserve a room or a, a section of it or keep an office or use it as a hot desk or whatever. So that, but I, th- I think that's just one of what I would maybe say is maybe six key systems that, could be, should be possibly reoriented towards mission. So this is why it's difficult in a, in a pre-existing church, a traditional church form to kind of bolt on mission or, or, or divert resources towards mission. I just think that's very challenging. And you asked about kind of my move to Ireland and part of the reason why I'm here is to try to step, like dip my toes in that water of like, how, how do we help churches change their operating system. And, and on, I'm going to be honest with you, it's very vexing. Like that, that, that challenge, that problem to me seems much harder than starting from scratch, you know, and maybe that's just because that's my experience is starting something from scratch. 
but but I have a lot of respect now for that journey and trying to see can we take an existing system and gently without destroying it um, you know change those fundamental um, commitments towards something that maybe doesn't exist anymore a, a reality both at the world and also a church reality which really doesn't exist anymore yeah and that's the space uh, you know that forge is in and i and i'm in personally also i mean i work at a larger in a larger church context and and we're shifting we've been shifting to a missional uh, uh practice uh focus and the thing that has allowed us to do that is economically we rent our building to a non-faith-based charter school during the week. And so that, that kind of uh, gives us the bandwidth to release the giving out into the community and to launch people and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Mark DeMaz, you know, Mark has been doing some yeah. great, great work around this, just church, church economics that are coming up. We're going to have him on the podcast pretty soon, but that that's kind of a, a premise I'm wondering about, you know, as if, if buildings can be rethought up and, um, no doubt. and you can you know, rent them, use them for community space, that kind of stuff. And that kind of frees up financially the ability to move toward missional ecclesiology. Well, that's cool. Um, so how's the beer in Dublin? Good? <laughs> Man, I, I, it's, it's one of the tragedies here is I, I don't drink alcohol. Oh, okay. And I don't, and I don't drink coffee. Oh, so man. basically I have no friends. I mean, what that means in the end is that you, you don't have friends. I mean, I just, I'm always the weird the weird one who's in a, is sitting in coffee shops not having a coffee <laughs> or sitting in a pub not having a pint, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, people okay. put up with me. They, yeah, they that's all right. We'll pray, we'll pray for you, man. <laughs> that's okay. Cool. Well, so people can find out more about um, Underground. Give me the website. Uh, for well, the, the the probably probably the the main one is undergroundnetwork.org. That would be the okay. place to see kind of our sister networks. And, yeah. Yeah. So because we could spend the whole time talking about Underground and the story yeah. of that, I, I would encourage everyone to go on Underground. And there's a about a 30 minute documentary on there that's really well yeah. done that tells a story. And uh, poke around on that website. There's all kinds of trainings that that they do if you're a church planter or um, just someone that's kind of interested, uh, you will get fired up by looking around on their website and seeing that. So, uh, so go there. But what, what I really wanted to get to today is, um, kind of this conversation you've unleashed with this little book, micro churches, um, which everyone should go pick up, um, the subtitle, a smaller way. So, um, Give me a little premise for people that haven't read the book, a little premise on that book and um, what you're trying to say with it. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, we were, we were, we were kind of uh, touching on earlier before we got on this call that, that, you know, what's the future look like, you know, for the church. I think it's something you're really interested in. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, it's a compulsion of mine to be thinking about trying to understand or predict the future forecast, whatever. Um, and I would say there's sort of three major forces that are kind of indelibly 
at work in our time. One is anxiety. I mean, we just live in a time of extreme anxiety, social anxiety. It's just really hard to be a leader. It cuts out the legs of boldness, muscular kind of forms of leadership. Now, I, I think I think that's kind of a bad thing. You know, obviously, <laughs> the, the rise of anxiety and the death of leadership doesn't seem like a good thing. Uh, but I wonder, you know, if it's kind of a prophetic corrective in some ways to the ways that we've done leadership and the ways that we've set up leaders to kind of be these, you know, I don't know, demagogue kind of people. Um, and and so that, that kind of anxious environment's one big, big force, big factor. The other is the rise of kind of autonomy and creativity. Like people want to, people want to create something with their life. They don't just want to consume anymore. So the idea of the church as, as essentially you know, at work in the consumer economy, I think we're realizing now you, you better find a way to help people be creative with their own lives because it's just, it's something they expect. It's something they need. And then the third kind of force or factor I would say is like the dispersion of power, something about powers being kind of broken down into smaller bits. So institutional powers is really weakening, if not being destroyed. I mean, there's a guy called Moises Naim, um, South American intellectual who wrote a book recently called the end of power. And he has a fascinating thesis that actually power is being destroyed, that there's actually less power available uh, in the, in the sort of total, you know, environment than there was before. Um, or, or someone like, like um, Henry Timms and Jeremy Hyman's new book, new power, where they're just saying power is being sort of broken into small bits. It, Naeem actually calls them micropowers that, that, that this is how power is being distributed. You can you can overlap that to someone like Seth Godin, who's talking about what tribes, micro niche kind of like all you need is a thousand people to change the world, you know, because yeah. a thousand followers or a thousand people interested in your ideas. It's, there's no such thing as the mass market anymore. So all of those things I think conspire to a reality where the future is small, um, mm -hmm. and figuring out what is the church when it's small and is that a good thing is that a bad thing is that something we just tolerate um because i do think there's this false notion that bigger is better that actually we we've just kind of chased growth or size with this unchecked assumption that surely a church of a thousand people is better than a church of 500 people a church of 2000 is better than a church of a thousand a church of 10,000 is better than a church of 2000 and and I'm 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 sort of challenging that. So part part of the part of what the book is doing is exploring is that actually true theologically? Is that true experientially? Like, can we actually say that the bigger the church is, the greater the fruit? Like, let's say per capita or impact on the city or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of looking at the question of like, so I started, and you know this too, but we started with the question of like the ecclesial minimum, like what is if you strip the church down to its very sort of basic pieces, it's yeah. it's irreducible minimum. What would you be left with? Like, what would you have to admit if these things were in place? I'd have to admit that's the church. Now you could wish for more, and that would be great. But but what is that sort of? And you know, the underground was built on that question of. Sure the ecclesial minimum. But with this book, I think I'm asking a different kind of question, not just what is the ecclesial minimum as if we're just trying to figure out a way to scale or a way to like strip it down to its simplest form so that you can reproduce it. But more like the Goldilocks effect. 
um, like what is the perfect size of a church? Huh. You know, I, I, I'm just curious about that question because again, I think there's this, I don't know, this, this mistake that we make to think, well, surely a bigger church would be better than a smaller church. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we intuitively know that, I mean, whether we admit it or not, like I've worked in small churches in my 25 years and I've worked in big churches. And so you gain certain things in a big context, um, you know, freedoms or resources or those kind of things, but you lose things like community, knowing everyone at a, at a deeper level, you know, outside of your small group or whatever. Yeah. And, and as the church gets bigger, churches know that intuitively. And so they put a bunch of effort into small group systems because they know that people have to connect in community relationally. Right. Right. And so it's like uh, even guys that are pushing for growth in their church are still pushing for micro in in some sense. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and, and maybe the only real difference between let's say someone like me wanting to use the word church instead of small group or life group or home group or something like that is, is that I'd like to say that actually what those big churches are trying to do when they pursue a small group ministry or community or whatever is to actually admit that, that that is an expression of the church. Um, And I think more and more that's becoming kind of understood. There's not a lot of pushback that I get anymore that, you know, that we're, you know, these small expressions that would have our three kind of minimal community worship and mission, when those three things are at play or coalescing, where they overlap, we're just saying, well, that is the church. I mean, whether you like it or not, whether you call it that or not, whether it has the proper support or not, uh, whether it has the kind of ordination systems in place or not, whether it has proper governance around it or not, that, well, those are all things that we could work towards. Those are all things we could, we can network and and, and recreate the church to support it. Whether those things are true or not in a certain context doesn't change the fact that it's still the church. It's still right. an expression of the church. But, but you know, it, it's interesting because that, that, that idea of the Goldilocks effect or the Goldilocks principle, it almost appears in every single discipline. You know, you've got, it's in statistics, it's in child development, early childhood development, it's in social psychology, it's in something like, astrophysics you know the idea of like rare earth like if the earth is you know just a little bit farther from the sun life is impossible if the earth is a little closer to the sun life is impossible like it just has to be just right that sort of perfect spot for life to exist at all and that idea of like the goldilocks principle is it's just a i just think that's a fascinating question for ecclesiology like yeah. what is the, the, the zone in yeah. terms of church size? Like if we, if we really had to answer that question, where does the church sort of perform at its best? So again, yeah, if you have 10,000 people, you're going to have a lot of money. You're probably going to have a great physical plant. You'll probably have really top level leaders, right? You'll be able to make a big splash and things sure. like advertising and so on. But per, per capita, is, that, is, it, is, the, is the return on investment there? very good is it very high yeah not I mean, really and, and will, will a creek kind of yeah kind of proved that go. with the reveal study years exactly. you know, decades ago so 
And, yeah. and I think that's a, that's a kind of cautionary tale. It's not to yeah. say that we shouldn't pursue that. And maybe, and the other thing that I think is important is that most churches in America, uh, something like 95% of all churches in, in, in the United States are less than 500 people. Right. And then when we're talking about something like 60% are less than a hundred people. So we're t- now we're just talking about statistical reliability. When I say the word church, what do I mean? What do you mean? Sure. Uh, we're actually already talking about something small, statistically speaking. You know, most, the, the majority of churches in America that will meet this Sunday will have less than 75 people in the room. Right. Right. So instead of, and that, I think this is really important because instead of yearning and keep striving, all these churches, so we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands of churches who are going to gather and be small this weekend and feel inferior, feel like failures. Because when they look around the corner and they see that sort of big structure, that super church, they feel like, well, that's, that's what I'm meant to be. That's what I should be. And so if you believe in the sovereignty of God, like maybe God hasn't completely failed in the, in the organization of his church. Um, actually, not just in our time, but all over the world, and, and since the inception of the church, it has been small. Mm. Essentially, it's been organized as something which is small. So I would love to see us start thinking about what is that kind of perfect little size, the Dunbar number, you know, like 150 yeah. people or whatever, yeah. or some, some sort of question, like what is the, the kind of highest operating, most fruit generating kind of size of the church? And then become really good at that. Why don't we have more resources helping small churches be small? you know, be successfully small, Um, maybe reproduce themselves, but also just be good at evangelism and caring for the poor and making disciples and, and being present in their community and, and like real kind of social fabric kind of transformation stuff. But because we're all reaching and yearning to have a super big church, because we all have the little, little, the little devil on our shoulder <laughs> saying you're going to be the next mega church or something. Yeah. Uh, we're just, I think we're reaching for the wrong thing, man. Uh, yeah. yeah. And again, not because I think there's anything wrong with a big church. In fact, maybe we need one or two of those in every city, but they're, they're an anomaly statistically. Yeah. So we could celebrate it and say, that's cool. We need stuff like that. We need one or two of those in a city, but that's well, not kind of, really what the church is. Yeah. And it's kind of like you said, I mean, the, the, the bigger the church, the bigger the splash they can make. Not even that they're trying to make a big splash, but I mean, they just, you know, attract better band members for worship teams and better speakers. Right. And, yeah. you know, they can have conferences and they can do all these things. And so, um, I mean, Alan Hurst talks a lot about that too, you know, how we're just kind of driven toward reproducing that. And, um, you know, as you're talking, it makes me think too, that it would be cheaper to do church if totally. we can shift our paradigms on what we're looking for, you know, instead of church growth, yeah. uh, let's start talking about kingdom, kingdom growth or kingdom expansion. And if kingdom expansion looked like, you know, like the underground 210 or whatever churches around the city and houses and businesses, that is a mega church, but you just flattened the whole thing out, you know? Which again is is I I think what's what's important about the underground not not that it's you know some sort of model but just that it's it's 
it's indigenous to this time. So it does respect autonomy and creativity in people. It does, it does sort of affirm the priesthood of all believers. Um, it is a networked kind of church reality, which is important. And in a time where, where it, in, in an anxious time, where the tip of the spear, the top of the hierarchy, the bull muscular leader from the 20th century is going to be taken down. I mean, whether it's right or wrong, you just don't want that. I'm telling you, you do not want to be that person anymore. You thought you did, but you don't. And so again, flattening the model is, is also a kind of contextual response to the time in which we live. And I, and I think it has theological basis, too. I mean, I, I think of, like, Jesus saying, you know, if the, some of the strongest words that he reserves is, is, is this idea of, like, protection of the little ones. You know, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, it's an interesting term there in, in Greek, at least, because it's, it's, the, it's the Greek word micron. You know, so there is a connection there to, to our, to the etymology of the word micro, but anyone who causes one of these little ones, he could use the word child, but he doesn't. He, he, he chooses this sort of more generalized idea of just small things, you know, don't mess with small things, you know, don't, don't cause small things to stumble because if you do, then you have sort of God to deal with. Um, and I think I, I, I inadvertently, accidentally, we have caused small expressions of the church to stumble. We really have. We, we, we've given them the wrong target. Um, and we haven't honored and affirmed small, beautiful expressions of the church if they can't grow beyond a certain size or a certain number. Listen, I'm telling you, I, I have had the, the, the privilege of seeing just small expressions of the church that take your breath away. Yeah. Um, because what they do is so unique. It's so particular. It's so tailored to a certain place or a certain kind of people. And so I'm in love with microchurches just because I've actually seen what they can do, what they can be. But we have got to then come alongside those people and say, don't become something else, you know. Uh, keep being what you are. Keep making disciples in that, that missionary gap. That's the other thing is the smaller the church uh, the more it can sort of wiggle its way into these these missionary gaps in our world and in our cities. And the bigger the church, the, the less agile, clearly, that mm -hmm. it is, you know. Now, it can, it can break itself down into something small. It could have a ministry to a certain thing. But, that, but essentially, that's what it has to do. It has to take its bigness and dismantle it so that it can get into missional gaps in, in the city. So again, it's, it's missiologically, it's astute, it's, it's contextual to our time. Uh, it, it is returning kind of control of the church back to its people. Uh, it's, it's moving away from big personality led kind of uh, versions of the church, which I think are just kind of a, a losing proposition right now, right. a losing gamble, you know. Uh, it, it just, in many ways, it feels like an idea whose time has come. Yeah. So, I mean, I keep, I keep coming in contact with um, a couple of different people. Um, if it's, if it's leaders that are in church, they're exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, they're exhausted of um, 
the pulpit driving things. They may not want to admit it yet, but they're exhausted of that. They're exhausted of figuring out how to put a new roof on the building. Um, you know, how to do events. Uh, and most of these guys and gals are in these churches that are like 200 to 500. Uh, they can't afford staff to do everything. And so they're trying to do everything. Um, and then I'll, I'm also coming in contact with church planters that are, they're almost in this liminality personally because they've learned in seminary and in their MDiv degree and all this stuff that they're supposed to come out and find a middle school and raise a bunch of money and launch a Sunday service. Yeah. But, um, they come in contact with us and I've had several of these discussions just trying to rethink how they do things. Um, and, and they have no idea how to do it. So kind of what would you, what would you say to those two groups? There's this, there's this, you know, little bit bigger size church pastor that wants to recreate something. And then you have these church planters that I think it's innate within them that they don't want to do what they've been taught to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, so how, how do we be innovative with an existing ecclesiology? Well, the easier question to answer is, is for the church planter. And I think, I think, I think for them, I would say um, don't plant a church. Like that's not even the correct uh, terminology possibly, but, but plant mission. So actually what, what we, what we should start with. And, and so in this little book, I, the, the first half of it is kind of an apologetic for the microchurch as, as a, as a legitimate form of the church. Uh, but the second half is really like how to start one. It's a more of a functional practical guide to how to start one. And I, I would, I would make the argument that you, you don't go off to plant a church and what people mean by that, like you just said, is, is start a, start a service, start a worship service. I think that is a mistake. I think, um, missiologically and ecclesiologically, it's a mistake. You, you start with mission, you go into a place and you reach people and you incarnate and you preach the gospel and you serve the poor and you become critical indispensable to that place and those people. And if God's spirit kisses that experience and people find faith, then a church emerges and the, the church is born. That's, that's how the church comes to be. It comes to be in the soil of mission. Churches, churches grow from the soil of mission. So what we go to do is mission, not church planting. And I think the reversal is you show up thinking, well, I'm going to get a band and I'm going to make my first preaching series and I'm going to send out some leaflets or whatever. And then who's going to show up? Well, it's just going to be Christians. Obviously then. Right. Uh, it's just going to be people coming from churches they don't like or churches they're annoyed, with. which by the way, you don't really want those people. You think you do, but you really, <laughs> you really don't because if your first, if your first hundred people is just people that are annoyed with their previous church, it's just yeah. a matter of time before they're annoyed with you. Um, so, so now it is interesting that you bring up the, the sort of 300 to 500 type size church. It's just, it's like a reverse Goldilocks. It's just big enough to be able to pay four or five staff people, but then also to expect all those, those four people to do everything right. you know, to be everything for them as 400 people or something. 
and I, I just think that's a much more complicated question. And I think yeah. it does have to do with, with shifting every single system. So if I, if I come in and do consulting for a church like that, I would want to look at eight sort of eight key systems in the church and say, how can each of these essentially make the shift towards uh, a bias towards mission? It can't just be one thing. You can't just preach mission. That's not mm -hmm. going to be enough. Right. Uh, you can, right. you, there, the money has to change. The building, the physical plant has to change. The culture has to change. The communication has to change. The governance has to change. Now, you can do incremental changes there. But I guess my word to those people is uh, don't. it has to be wholesale. Like you, right. have, you have to cut across every single thing if you're trying to make that kind of operational system change. Yeah, and I think I think we've we've arrived at the same, um, the same thing at Forge, you know, when we have a church partner, the, the first conversations have to be with, you know, whatever they call leaders, elders, you know, that, that kind of upper level. And it's like, you know, are, are, is this group really willing to flatten that structure and um, move into a, a whole different paradigm? It's like, they need to go, it's like they need to go through, you know, the orthodoxy, orthopraxy, um, liminal tension to kind of get there even before the church can get there. And so it's yeah. a, it becomes a, you know, five year process or whatever, um, to kind of shift a church like that. But, you know, in my, in my own heart, I just, I look at all the churches, church buildings that are out there vying for that 40% in America. I know it's even less in, in, um, in Europe, but that 40% of the population is just kind of shifting from church to church and they're just scraping and clawing to get them in there. And, uh, and they want to change something. They're just trying to figure out how. Yep. So. Well, and, and, you know, e even in the, the most unfriendly environment, because, you know, institutions, organizations have immune systems, right? So they, they will attack the foreign idea. Um, even if you don't mean to, even if the, the senior leaders are keen for a certain idea, if the idea is a threat to the existing system, that is to say it means to change it, um, the system itself will attack it. And so in, in that sense, it can be a sort of spurious job to say, let's, let's bring in mission to this existing thing, or let's bring in really any, any change manage, management kind of work. So I think another possibility is to create some kind of skunk works or parallel side project, which I, I would encourage certain, I mean, one of the things we do for churches now is this, is we do like a missional readiness assessment where we sort of look at all these eight systems and we give them a score and actually say, okay, how warm or how friendly would this environment be towards the change that you're talking about making? Because I don't really want to be involved in that if it's going to end in disaster or bloodletting or something. So if, if in the end the score is low and the church is just, it just, it's not going to work here. You, you need to have that kind of confront the brutal facts kind of thing and admit that, but that doesn't mean you have no play. That doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. I think what it means is you have to be, you have to have enough sobriety to say, let's do this, but let's create something just outside of this system, parallel to the system, which has a new name. 
I mean, it can, it can have the same leaders in a sense. You could just sort of transport them to be a board of directors for this new initiative, yeah. but it has to have its own rules. It has to have its own resources. It has to be able to do things in its own way and be in a sense free from those, those, um, you know, the, the, the culture or the what traditions. Is the, yeah. Yeah. The traditional yeah. normalcy of the other, yeah. the other system. And again, that's not, that's not an indictment against it. It's just saying, look, that's true for all innovative uh, ideas that when they're, when they're brought into an existing institutional system, they're going to be perceived as a threat and the system is not going to welcome it. It's just how it works. No matter, no matter how people's hearts are. So sometimes that might be a, a, a tactic or a, a suggestion that we yeah. might make. Yeah. And that's ironic uh, that you mentioned that. I mean, cause 2020 is a year here at the church I'm at uh, where we're launching a, you know, it looks a little bit like the underground. It's a little bit different, but it's kind of a network model 501c3 outside of our walls, but it's okay. because we have the money and the resources to do it. Um, and our people do talk mission inside the church, but I don't think they could handle, you know, blowing up existing structures. And so, sure. so we're actually going to set that yeah. outside the walls and treat it as a missional expression in the city and it. just expand the kingdom that way. So, uh, but I think churches all over are going to have to start thinking real innovative ways, kind of mess with, mess with our ecclesiology, take some bricks out of the building and kind of, um, and see what emerges, you know? But I think, I think that's a, that's a creative, um, solution because I think to think the more we kind of contemplate massive system change, the more just anxiety that produces. And you can almost start calculating in your mind, all the people that are going to oppose you and the, the donors right. that are going to leave and the, the problems with the elders. And it's just like not worth it, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I love that as a solution, as a potential solution, like just go do this thing. It can be it can be like a gem, a feather in the cap, actually, of the existing church. Right. And if we're right, if I'm right, then come back in 20 years, and that thing which you started as a parallel entity will be the church. Well, it may, yeah, it may be bigger <laughs> than the campus. I mean, we, we asked a question here, which was if we doubled. I mean, our church is about a thousand with kids. If we doubled the size of this church, of this church community, and none of those people came to this campus, would we be okay with it? And we said yeah. yes. So, you know, if you, if you do mission, right, then yeah. what you're doing in the city is lar would be larger than even the campuses. Right. Yeah. Campus well, and it goes, it goes to what we count too, doesn't it? I think yeah. as long as we yeah. keep counting people that come on a Sunday morning, I think that is a, that is a very unhelpful metric in sure. the 21st century. Um, and it, and it really does work against mission. So the first thing we have to do is let go of that metric. So it sounds like that's something you've done. I think that's exactly the thing to do: start counting things like initiatives or part, you know, missionary gaps that we're filling, or places where the gospel is going out where it wasn't before, or or in our terminology, like micro churches that are being planted or supported or something. Like we've never counted people ever. We, we I wouldn't be able to tell you how many people are involved in the underground, yeah. but I can always tell you to a number the number of microchurches because that's what we count. That's what we care about. That's what well, I, and I noticed you guys talking stories too, which is, yeah. you know, and I, I heard one guy say, you know, you can't, it's hard to write a story on a spreadsheet 
but <laughs> you know, true. spreadsheet <laughs> spreadsheets are where we put attendance and giving. Those are really easy to put there. Uh, it's good, a lot. Yeah. It's a lot harder to write a story on a spreadsheet. You know. <laughs> so. Well, you know, and that's and that's even even the idea of metrics. Like, what are we what are we measuring? What are we looking for? Is a slightly different that 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 comes from sort of uh, Frederick Taylorism. You know scientific management which is you know yeah. probably the most influential book no one's ever read but like <laughs> this sort of in industry and steel and efficiency and organizational the idea of best practices and, and 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 turning the church essentially into something which is about which is about churning out efficient product you know yeah. and 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 maybe that had a moment where that was useful and helpful and, and spurred our creativity but it just does, that doesn't fit anymore i think now we're thinking and probably should be correcting that to some degree just to talk about aesthetics, like not how many people do you have or how many people have you reached or discipled or whatever, but like how beautiful is the thing you're doing? And I think yeah. that's when you're talking about stories, you know, if we, if, if I say, okay, in your city, what's the best restaurant in your city? Like if I come for one night, where should I go? You're not going to talk about how many tabletops they have how many seats that's just yeah. irrelevant <laughs> to right, what right, makes right. a great restaurant a restaurant that if they shut it down your city would mourn you know because oh, all yeah. of us have those kind of places and that's what the church can be too it's that is about a story that's told which which takes the breath away or brings tears to the eyes or or just it makes you believe in god <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean yeah. Uh, this is what the church can be too. That that's a different kind of metric, isn't it? It's just, it's an aesthetic sure. metric. It's an, it's an artistic metric. Brian. Um, so, Hey, in closing here, uh, last question. Um, Cause you're, I mean, you're kind of a prophetic visionary type and anytime I'm around you or have a conversation with you, my heart beats a little faster and my blood starts pumping um, and there's probably a few people listening, uh, saying, yeah, that's what I want, or that's where I want to go, or that's what I've been looking for, or that's the verbiage, you know? Um, so give, if you can, I, you probably don't, I don't know if you have a list, but get, give us a, give someone a couple of things that they can do next steps. Um, you know, maybe some books to, um, read a book to read a, a, a thing that they should do contact underground, whatever someone that wants to make next steps. What would you say just toward this, um, this new way of thinking about ecclesiology and missiology and personal mission? Hmm. Well, that's, that's heavy. Um, well, I, I guess I would say, I mean, what's in my heart right now, just as you said, that was just, um, just, just to do it. Um, like, I guess I would plead with leaders in America to give up the desire to be a big deal. Um, and if you're meant to be a big deal, I suppose you should do so reluctantly. <laughs> and, and part of how, I think part of how we, we wring that out of ourselves is, is by just, going low and, and embracing the small bits of our life and actually to do mission. It's, it's actually surprising to me how many people would show up and say, Hey, we want to do something like the underground and they themselves personally are not invested 
indirect kind of street level mission with people like find some some people who don't have jesus that that sort of blue ocean where it's uncontested market space there is no church reaching those people there is nobody caring about them and just go give your life to them even if you're a even if you're a, a senior pastor or something like that i would say just get back to why you you wanted to do ministry in the first place you know mm-hmm embrace the small in your own life steal a day a week from your current job from your current kind of breakdown of time management steal it and give it to mission give it to the poor give it to people that don't know jesus or haven't heard the gospel or far from god like steal that back and if you do that a couple things will happen one you'll experience a kind of renewal of your own calling and a sense of what the church is and can be. And then that will give you like a roadmap, like a pathway to how to, mm-hmm. how to inspire that in other people. But don't, don't come asking about how to start a network if you yourself don't understand how to do the smallest portion of it, you know, the, the nodal reality there. How do we connect these sort of beautiful expressions of the church. Well, you do it by understanding it yourself, by having one yourself, being a place where I know exactly what I would need. And as you do that, you'll know, man, this is where I need encouragement. This is where I need training. This is where I need fellowship. This is where I need leadership community. This is where I need oversight or accountability. This is where I need coaching. This is where I need money or resources. You, you'll suddenly become an expert in, uh, in, in the bits about networking, you know? So, right. so even that, like just dream small, be small, get small, uh, so that you can see just how powerful the church can be and your own life, like a renewal, a revival of Jesus in your own life. That That's probably the, yeah, the we need a, we all need a personal revival, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, man, I wish we could, uh, spend another hour or two. I could easily, uh, talk with you uh, for a long time about this, this kind of stuff, but thanks for being with us and sharing some time from, um, from Ireland and um, our prayers are with you as you're over there um, kind of blazing a frontier and um, looking for what God wants to do uh, through you. And, uh, and I would say to everyone that's listening out there, if, you know, maybe this conversation has inspired you a little bit, uh, we are on a journey and we're trying to join God in mission uh, wherever he's at work. And we're just trying to help equip and support others to do that. And so uh, we'd love to talk with you about that, whether you're a church leader or just an individual practitioner. Uh, we have uh, about 26 hubs around the country that we'd love to connect you with. And so you could um, you could email us at or contact us at forgeamerica.com and just get hold of us. And we'd love to um, equip you and serve you in any way that we can. And we could get you in contact with underground and with Brian as well, if need be. So anyway, well, ble- blessings brother. And thank you for sharing some time with us and your wisdom and, uh, just best wishes on your journey, man. Thanks for what you do, bro. Okay. Thank you. Right. See you. Hey, fantastic conversation with Brian Sanders. Uh, appreciate him joining us from all the way from Ireland. Um, next episode, we're going to visit with Mark DeMoz. 
uh, from Little Rock, Arkansas. He's the pastor of Mosaic Church and leads the Mosaics Conference uh, every year. And he's got a new book um, on church economics that's just kind of blowing up everyone's uh, thought processes and discussions and Twitter feeds. So it'll be great to have Mark uh, talk about how to innovate and think about economics and church culture uh, going forward. Special thanks to Colorado Springs native Aaron Noble Brown for providing the music bed for this episode of our podcast. Be sure and catch the rest of his music on Spotify, iTunes, and other places that great music is found. Thanks, Aaron. We would love for you to jump on iTunes and give us a rating. Um, just tell people if you like this or not, or maybe if you don't like it, don't tell them. Uh, but if you like it, be sure and tell them. It helps people find the podcast and join the conversation with all of us. And so uh, please go out to iTunes. It just takes a couple of minutes and give us a rating. And be sure and subscribe uh, because we would love to have you here every week on the Forge American Missional Podcast. Um, but until next week, Alan, Terry, it's great to be with you guys. Look forward to next week. All right. See ya. See ya.